You're listening to the Charge Forward audio blog by Chargebacks 911, bringing you the latest in payments and fraud. To learn more about how Chargebacks 911 can help you reduce chargebacks and recover revenue lost to fraud, visit us online at chargebacks911.com. This episode is a replay of a webinar entitled Harnessing Chargeback Data, Leveraging What You Learn from Customer Disputes, and features experts from Chargebacks 911 and Redbridge. All right, I see some folks are still joining, but we'll go ahead and get started. So good afternoon, everyone, and thank you all so much for taking time out of your workday to be here. My name is Justin Clements. I'm the Director of PR and Media Relations for Chargebacks 911. Uh, For those who are unfamiliar with Chargebacks 911, we work to help merchants mitigate their chargebacks by providing customizable solutions that help them recover lost revenue and maintain a good reputation with customers and their payment processors. I'm really excited today to be joined by Dan Carter, who is the Senior Director and Head of Global Payment Strategy for Redbridge. Uh, He'll be sharing his insight on how data and feedback from customer disputes can be leveraged to optimize processes. So Dan, thank you so much for being here. Would you mind uh, just telling us a little bit more about yourself, a little bit about Redbridge and your company's areas of expertise? Yeah, absolutely. Happy to be here. So I'm Dan, I've been in the payment space for over 12 years. Like to say that I'm a reformed accountant. Uh, I made that jump over into payments pretty early in my career. Um, And I work for Redbridge, which is a full service advisory firm offering our customers um, solutions and strategies related to debt, um, cash management, treasury transformation, and of course, payments advisory. Um, And within that payments advisory uh, umbrella, we have several different services, including payment architecture, uh, fraud and acceptance management, and then cost optimization, as well as insights and reporting. Uh, Awesome, thank you so much again for being here, Dan. Um, Now, before we get started, just wanna quickly go over how this webinar is gonna be structured. Uh, The first part of the webinar will include a short presentation from Dan and myself. Uh, We've got some questions sprinkled in uh, that were submitted by some of you when you registered for the event. Um, Also, uh, toward the end, we'll have a Q&A portion where we'll go over uh, some more additional questions. Now, the first portion of the webinar will give you, we'll have some visual elements. So uh, if at all possible, if you could close any other windows that you have and just give us your undivided attention. Uh, the second portion of the webinar will be a Q&A where we answer many of the questions that were submitted. And this portion will be less visual, so it's okay if you just want to listen into that part. Uh, during the webinar, feel free to submit any questions that you have. Uh, we promise to answer any question that is submitted, if not live, then by email after the webinar. So if you have a question, we're not able to get to it today. Uh, we will follow up with you via email and make sure that that question gets answered. So in today's webinar, we're going to be covering how chargeback data can be gathered and used to optimize business practices and other ways that merchants can leverage that information that's gathered from customer disputes. So some of the items that we're going to be going over today include uh, identifying, accessing, and organizing your data, simplifying your analysis, uh, defining internal and external processes, analyzing outcomes, and optimizing those processes. So Dan, if you don't mind, I'd like to kick us off with a quick question. And I know that every merchant might have a different process for how they go about managing their chargeback data, uh, things like sales volume uh, and, and, you know, what, what alternative payment methods are accepted might go into uh, come into play with how merchants manage their chargeback data. 
But are there any key challenges that you see just across the board that are impacting chargeback management teams? Yes, absolutely. And the, the number one issue that we encounter in, in our course of business is, is definitely that bandwidth question. Um, you know, depending on whether you're a major e-commerce retailer, you're in B2B, maybe you're an insurance provider, there's typically never enough resources to go around and to appropriately manage uh, incoming chargebacks. And often what we find is that causes uh, our clients to make really critical decisions about what they're going to choose to work, how they're going to work those incoming chargebacks, um, and then the decisioning that happens off the back of that of whether they're going to move forward with changing policies uh, or adapting uh, their processes to you know, prevent some of those incoming chargebacks. So it, it really is a, a bandwidth question. No, that that make that makes sense. So you just sort of jumping right in here, Dan, I'll let you sort of walk us through how merchants can uh, best identify, access, and organize their chargeback data. Uh, you know, really like the information that you uh, that that you sent over and included. Um, so I'll, I'll let you just sort of take us into a deep dive, and uh, yeah, yeah, sort of give us some insight into this. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, here at Redbridge, we, we love classifying things under major headings. We think that that's it's really helpful for just keeping things organized. Um, so we'll start off with identifying what data, you know, you may need. And I think it's really important that when you're thinking about your chargebacks, you have a really holistic viewpoint on the type of data that you're going to need to be collecting. Yes, it's very important to have access to your chargeback reporting from your acquirer, but that shouldn't be the sole source of data that you're relying on in terms of how you plan to manage your chargebacks from an effective position. So other areas of data that you may want to consider, including in your analysis and your you know, working of chargebacks is you're definitely going to want to look at your authorization reports if you have an anti-fraud solution or you're using anti-fraud products from your acquirer, what are those statistics saying? You definitely want to be looking at your return policies and your customer service logs. So what are customers calling in and complaining about or what types of tickets are your customer service teams working? You're also going to want to make sure that you are looking at the issuer responses on top of that as well. Um, you know, depending on your provider, you may have a, a richer source of issuer responses, but those are definitely something that's very critical to, to take into account, um, especially if you want to be, you know, better at recovering revenue. And then also looking at your prior dispute data, you know, you can look at this as kind of a twofold area of like what is your win and loss ratio, as well as just what are your incoming chargebacks saying. And also, you know, other areas you can include, you know, if you're using like a, a verifier B role, you can tap into those data sources as well. But identifying is one part of the equation. You also need to make sure that you have access to that data as well. So ensuring that the team members responsible for working these chargebacks 
all have the necessary access to either those statistics, those logs, um, those reportings. They all have access to them and they're all receiving them on a regular basis or they're receiving the necessary alerts to be able to timely respond to those. Um, you know, part of access means also distributing access in an efficient manner. Um, you know, we always recommend using shared inboxes. Um, for one, you never know if someone's going to get sick or hit by a car, and you can't have all of those alerts piling up into one specific uh, inbox. It also makes, you know, scheduling those alerts uh, much, much more efficient. And then also, you may need to establish, you know, cross-team touch points, right? You know, chargebacks touch multiple areas of the organization. So start getting really good and friendly with your customer service teams because you're likely going to need to be accessing their logs or accessing those team members to get more of that information. And then also, you know, establish issuer contacts. Uh, you may find in your analyses that you're maybe having particular issues uh, with one issuer over another, um, and it would be in your best interest to then establish a contact at that issuer to really understand, you know, potentially why they're rejecting so many of your um, disputes. And then also organization is very important. Uh, you want to make sure that the analyses that you're doing, the data that you're collecting um, is all organized, um, especially if you're tapping into external providers. A lot of the integration process that we experience from our end and a lot of the time spent is making sure that that data is organized well and that those external providers can access that in an efficient manner. Um, also creating logs to track both your wins and your losses. It's very important to track both. I know it seems like counterintuitive to track your wins because a win is a win and, you know, kudos, but you definitely want to track why you're winning, right? You know, that can help you maybe diagnose issues between certain or specific issuers or certain instances. Um, as well as, you know, help you extrapolate that information to your losses. And then looking at it just from an overall team organization standpoint, who's working what, when, and where, and who are they going to report to is also important because it keeps duties defined. It lets you know um, who's going to be the responsible party for actioning on those items. Uh, it's not uncommon for clients to come to us and not have dedicated resources. You know, it may be someone's part-time job to be, you know, working chargebacks, um, and they don't have a lot of organization in that process or structure um, in their methodology. So making sure that there's a clear team organization is also something very critical when thinking of this um, as a holistic exercise. Yeah, and, and and Dan, touching on the uh, the accessing portion that you had, you know, some merchants they might outsource their chargeback management uh, to other companies, or they might share data with people outside of their company. 
you know, at, at Chargebacks 911, we, we try to, you know, we, we go above and beyond to, to encrypt and protect that data. But just from your experience and the clients that you work with, uh, are, are there any best practices for companies to ensure that their data that they're sharing is secure while at the same time accessible? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this depends, you know, on your particular external partner, uh, but they will have preferred methods of how they want to access that data, whether it's being able to set up um, secure API keys so that they can simply pull via API, or whether you're going to be depositing via SFTP. You need to be thinking about how you're going to need to open up and allow those external providers in um, and make sure that you're actually able to do it because you know in order for those external providers to be efficient and to provide a lot of ROI for you you need to not tie one arm behind their back and not give them all of the data or access to certain um, parts of your system that they're going to need to be able to to most efficiently dispute chargebacks on your behalf. Gotcha, gotcha. So with this, I think it's always important to make sure that you're simplifying your analysis without oversimplifying it. It can be very easy to get bogged down in a lot of data. I mean, I think the, the fun thing to say is drowning in data. I think we're all swimming in a big data ocean these days, and it's very easy to get swept away by a current. And so one of the things that we wanted to show here was one, just all of the chargeback codes that are related to you know fraud. I think one thing that really stands out here off the bat is Huh, every card network seems to have a different code for each you know, specific type of fraud that they're you know, saying this chargeback falls under. Mm-hmm. And then even within that, you're often going to find that acquirers may change those codes slightly. Um, so you know, instead of maybe seeing a 10.4, you might see a 1040 or just a 104. Um, and sometimes occasionally they use deprecated codes. So you definitely wanna make sure that when you're conducting your analyses, you group certain aspects of things together and make it relevant for your business. So it may not be entirely relevant for your business to go into such granularity of saying, all right, we need to be able to document all of these different types of fraud um, by their specific code. You may be able to just move up a level and classify it as fraud, um, but you also want to have those kind of higher level classifications because it's important to be able to divide specific work streams, such as you may have instances of fraud, but you might also have kind of some policy abuse situations, um, some situations that are falling under like consumer disputes, right? Is, are people claiming that merchandise is showing up broken or that they never received the merchandise, right? You wanna have those different classifications because you can then move up a level and then make sure that you're analyzing things appropriately of 
all right, when we're looking and taking a step back, what's the win-lose ratio related to those um, cardholder disputes versus things that are being claimed as fraud? And what you might also even find in doing some of that is maybe some of your uh, 10.4s uh, are actually not fraud um, and they're actually more of a policy abuse or a friendly fraud situation. But because we're looking at so many different sources of data, you know, again, it's just so over easy to anal over analyze to create potentially situations that just aren't there, especially when you start adding things in like decline codes, the ABS responses, what your fraud parameters are, are triggering and firing, right? It's always kind of important to think to yourself, you know, if you hear hooves, it's more likely going to be horses and not zebras. So taking kind of that aspect into consideration um, and applying that to your win-loss likelihood um, and defining metrics that actually really matter for your organization um, and matter to the audience that you're going to be reporting them to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, also just looking at these reason codes, and especially if you're a merchant on the webinar today, uh, that you're you're handling those those chargebacks in-house. You know, I, I would also say it's it's very important to keep up with some of the industry trends, especially uh, as it pertains to compelling evidence. Uh, for example, uh, in mid-April, Visa came out with their compelling evidence 3.0, and one of the big updates in there was for their reason code 10.4, and that's sort of uh, that one's kind of being used as more or less a a default reason code. Sometimes when you can't find an exact reason code, you just file it under 10.4. That's card not present, authorization not recognized. It's uh, so what the new compelling evidence does. It kind of lays a little bit of base work for you to upload, you know, for a particular cardholder past transaction history, IP addresses. But it's essentially laying the foundation uh, in case you have someone tries to commit chargeback abuse, and it's it's kind of the first instance that we see from a major card network of of them acknowledging that friendly fraud and first party misuse is an issue. So um, there, I think that there are gonna be more shifts like that to follow. Um, I think the industry is finally coming around to recognizing that this is a problem for merchants and I think more protections are gonna be coming for merchants. So, you know, if you're handling chargebacks in-house, uh, you know, just be on the lookout, do some research, uh, you know, first 30 minutes of your day, last 30 minutes of your day, just check out what the industry is coming out with new updates um and 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 try to be you know vigilant and and how you you know just just keeping up with those industry trends just to better protect yourself because you know twice a year they come out with those updates and the more you can stay on top of it and abide by it the more those card networks are going to appreciate it and the more your bottom line is going to appreciate that so i just wanted to throw that in there as well yeah certainly a great addition So, of course, you know, especially if you're going to be managing this internally or externally, it's really critical to define a process. So, we've kind of handled that identify and analyze part of the situation. And now you really need to look at the optimized section. And so, a lot of times, 
you know, people do want to handle this internally. Um, and this is an area where we have lots of discussions with merchants. Um, and really, it takes a very critical self-assessment on what you're choosing to respond to. Uh, I can recall a conversation I was having with a merchant where they said, you know, well, we're only responding to chargebacks that come in of X dollar threshold. Everything that falls below this, you know, we don't really want to be spending our time on. And, you know, the question that I posed back to that, you know, uh, merchant was, well, have you tested your, your win likelihood on all of the, you know, chargebacks that are coming in at that dollar amount that you don't want to work versus the win uh, rate of all of these, you know, significant dollars that you're working. And they actually didn't have an answer for me. They didn't know. And I think that's very important to consider, you know, especially when you're working an internal um, process that you may be spending a lot of time working chargebacks that you may never win at the end of the day, only working them because they're a specific dollar amount and they get a lot of visibility. But you may want to experiment with, you know, disputing some of those other chargebacks that are coming in that maybe fall below that dollar threshold because you could actually start winning a whole bunch of those. And so balancing that time versus effort versus reward is certainly something that you're going to need to consider and track with your data. Um, and always remember that the whole goal of going through and collecting all of this data and testing how you're disputing is to work towards a prevention strategy because prevention is really the best internal strategy. You want, you don't want customers reaching for that chargeback uh, option in their online banking. It's so easy these days. Um, you really want to make sure that you're identifying and addressing all of those issues. And then when you look at how you may want to consider an external partner, you know, what should be outsourced is going to be very specific to the type of business that you have. Um, you know, you may want to then take a look at maybe you do want to you know, maybe for you as an organization, going back to that original um, conversation, maybe outsourcing those larger dollar chargebacks to a partner um, who's going to have a much higher win rate because they know a lot of, you know, the intricacies of how to defend against those. Maybe that's actually the ones that you want to outsource instead of the smaller dollar ones because you're capable of winning those at a high rate on your own. Mm -hmm. So you can take a lot of those things into consideration of how you choose to outsource and what you choose to outsource. Um, but again, you, you got to make sure that these partners have the data that they're going to need. It's just simply not going to be an effective return on, on your investment to not give them all of the tools to succeed. So when considering an external strategy, again, you know, you have to look at those cross team you know, functionalities of, you know, you may have to have some IT conversations about what you're willing to open up and what you're not. Um, 
and be able to kind of start to prove out from an internal business case why you would want to be doing this because of the dollars that are um, open to be recovered. And then also remember that just because you outsource doesn't mean that you don't have to make any changes. This is not like an ostrich solution, right? Um, you know, external partners are great, but ultimately the goal is to continue to shrink the types of uh, the volumes that they're actually going to be working at the end of the day by going back and saying, okay, do we have a fraud situation that we need to address that we just haven't been addressing? Do we have some of that policy abuse that maybe we need to close a loophole on? Um, or maybe we just need to be collecting better data at the end of the day to be able to provide the best compelling evidence to defend against. Um, a lot of different situations uh, that we run into with merchants and it's, it's usually there's a, a bit of everything and every corner that people can be doing to, to improve upon. Mm -hmm. um, but external partners can be really, really helpful in really giving you breathing room also if you need breathing room in the immediate you know future mm -hmm. yeah and you know and, and when you're collecting that data too very important too especially on the chargebacks that you seem to be losing if you can get like as much details you know if you're a merchant getting as much details as you can you might see, you know you might see some trends emerge you know kind of like you were saying dan like you know maybe there's refunder policy abuse that's going on that you know if you make note of that and you're able to see that pattern then you can go in and check it and, and you know and patch up some of those loopholes you know we 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 sometimes you know we we give our clients our you know our ideas of, of best practices when it comes to sort of that uh customer engagement and checking out their processes but honestly you know especially those merchants on the webinar today that handle those chargebacks in-house um, it, it really beneficial if you go through that purchasing process as if you are the customer yourself. I mean, going going through the the checkout and even post transaction. Um, we published a field report recently that uh, from the merchants that we surveyed, we found that over half don't know how their billing descriptor shows up on uh, on uh, transaction statements uh, for for customers through their through their banks um, and then we found that 74% had never had never changed theirs uh, as well so, so something where it's like even post transaction after checkout there might be an issue you know let's say a customer goes onto their bank statement and sees a transaction well if your billing descriptor might be confusing or vague or you know doesn't really match up with uh, the, the branding that you sort of have on your website especially if you're doing business as another name um, check those things out because that might be something that's leading to chargebacks. They might make a legitimate purchase, but then go to their billing statement, see something that doesn't quite match up or that they don't recognize, and then they're fi filing that chargeback uh, where you know if that billing descriptor might have just been accurate, th that would have jogged their memory and might not have led to them to file that chargeback in the first place. So just going through that process uh, is really important as if you're the customer yourself. Now, Dan, I know you know when we typically get uh, clients who come on board uh, looking to outsource their management, it's usually just a matter of, you know, they might not have the expertise or the bandwidth to deal with that. But for Redbridge, uh, are there any other indicators that companies should consider 
when they're trying to decide what should be outsourced to third parties? Yeah, absolutely. I think when you're looking at outsourcing and looking at your your win-loss ratio and looking at your bandwidth, right, they're just going to be, you know, there's you have to take an 80-20 approach to it, right? If you want to be an expert organization, you have to commit to being an expert organization. And, you know, one of the things that we see when we work with external partners is a lot of times issuers have a lot of weird little idiosyncrasies of how they want to see compelling evidence of what, you know, what file format they want to see it in, how it has to be structured, that working with an external partner, you know, if you're trying your hardest and you're not getting the success, an external partner may just have more experience in knowing those small nuances to really help you, you know, achieve what you want to achieve. And I think that's, you know, a really important consideration, as well as, again, you know, going back to that self-assessment, what are you willing to do internally? Um, going back to that descriptor, you know, conversation, right? You may be pointing out internally and, and screaming from the mountaintop, we need to change this. This has to be changed. And that might, you know, unfortunately go into an IT project that's not going to get done for like a year and a half. So, you know, making those decisions about what can you do and what can you change uh, from your position um, may also factor into, okay, well, these are just things that we're not going to be able to change or there's a technical limitation here. Um, it may be best to consider bringing in a, you know, external party who can help us either navigate that change process or we can outsource the um, dispute management too. Uh, gotcha. Yeah, no, totally agree. So looking at analyzing those outcomes, because data is great, but analysis is better, and good analysis is great. So you really want to have some major considerations when you're looking at your analysis. And one of those big kind of key areas is, is timeliness. So, you know, you may be a large organization um, and you only get 50 chargebacks per year. So maybe that's not that many and you can have a larger window of time in which you can report on. But maybe you're an organization who maybe operates in a little bit higher risk of an industry. Maybe you're in online gaming or gambling or T&E hospitality, um, and you have more chargebacks that are coming in on a, a more regular basis, you as a merchant will have to assess kind of how frequently you're getting in chargebacks and tailor the period of time at which you're in that, uh, analyzing and reporting um, to be able to have the most relevant feedback for, you know, the other audiences in your organization. It's not helpful if you get 
5,000 chargebacks a year and you only do a yearly analysis on chargebacks. That could be potentially a lot of money that you're leaving on the table simply because you're leaving too large of a time frame um, in order to report back. Another really critical aspect of the data is how you handle it. Consistently handling your data, ensuring that you have clear methodologies in collection and analysis. Again, you know, it is not helpful if every six months you change the way that you're reporting or you change the way that you're analyzing things um, because you may have to go back and restate everything. Um, and it's also not helpful if you bring anyone new into the organization, um, can make their training a little bit more difficult. And then also you want to have that consistency when you work with external partners to be able to ensure that you can match up, you know, the way that they're going to be looking at things or data that you're going to be pulling back in from them to be able to have those, you know, accurate apples to apples comparisons. And then considering the audience that you're going to be reporting this to, you know, if, if you're on the call today and you report to a fraud manager, um, you know, you may be able to be more granular in your analysis and granular in what you're reporting back in terms of trends that you're seeing, um, certain issuers that may be having more uh, problems and being more specific on that. But if you're reporting back to a CFO or treasurer, they're probably, you know, going to want the high level information. So making sure that you are adapting your analysis of that data to the audience to get the outcome that you want is super important. Um, you know, hand tailoring those, you know, data visualizations so that they're most impactful for the audience is very, very critical to getting people to sign on, you know, if you're trying to say, hey, we need to hire three more resources, here's all of the metrics that say that we need to do that uh, versus saying, hey, we don't have the budget to hire three resources, but we have budget for an external partner, here's why we should be making those decisions, right? You have to have that right presentation for the audience uh, to get the outcome that you want. And then also thinking ahead is super important. You know, fraud is constantly changing, uh, whether it's intentional, unintentional, whether, you know, like Reddit exists in the world, right? There's forums out there where people are hacking refund processes or return processes. Um, or if you think right now, you may be someone in attendance who says, well, you know what? fraud really isn't that big of an issue for us. We don't get a lot of fraud. We don't put a lot of stake in it. Um, you know, maybe we're an insurance company that operates in a very, you know, secure fashion. That is probably the worst mindset to be in because fraudsters look for the people who think that they're not targets and make them targets. Mm -hmm. So, you always want to be thinking ahead and keeping your ear to the ground on what's happening in the industry, what's trending in your own data to make sure that you can think ahead and be proactive in any changes that you need to make. Now, Dan, if you're if if I'm a merchant that experiences like 
seasonal like spikes or lulls in uh, you know in in purchases and transactions. Uh, you know, understanding that you know you should, you should keep the the methodology of your analysis the same. But is there is there anything that merchants who have those like seasonal shopping times um, that they should do differently with their analysis during those times of booms or during those times of lulls? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where like you can definitely get into like an over analysis mindset of, of what's happening with your seasonality. So you may notice that you have a really high approval rate, low declines, um, and low declines on kind of like suspicious or like nebulous declines that could be indicators of fraud. You might have great statistics on those low periods, but when you hit the high periods, you might see a lot of those stats change. And those stats changing might not be you know, necessarily bad indicators. It just means that you have more shoppers and therefore you're expanding out the numbers. And so when you're taking a look at those analyses, you should be considering of, okay, is this a, a pure numbers presentation? Is it a percentage of that I need to be looking at? And also going back into the details of, okay, if we have seasonal activity, what is our delivery timeframes on, you know, what these people are buying from a, a seasonal perspective? And are there any, you know, consumer related issues that, you know, going back to what you said of going through your own sales process, right? Is that even creating certain situations that you then need to treat and uh, account for differently? Because maybe, you know, your website gets overran really easily or maybe you have production issues and you haven't communicated potential production issues. And so people are starting to get mad. You know, maybe you like, let's say, you know, you make uh, pies and you sell pies, you know, before Thanksgiving. And maybe there's a supply chain issue. I don't know. Maybe a lot of people have hit some supply chain issues. If you're not effectively knowing that you need to be communicating certain aspects of that, then you might start to see seasonal chargebacks pop up because people don't understand that there might be an interruption in the delivery timeframe. Uh, so being open and upfront with, with your customers about any setbacks. Yeah. That'll, that'll certainly help from a, uh, from a, you know, customer engagement standpoint. Yeah, no, that, that definitely makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think you could even eventually use that as compelling evidence of saying, you know, hey, on our checkout, right as that customer is checking out, they can see what's happening. And so they can't really argue that they didn't know because we put it front and center before they completed their purchase. So it was highly visible. They had the option to not make the purchase, knowing that there could be potential interruptions. So like keeping your mind open about what is evidence, what is data that can be returned and supplied and what you might have to, to capture, you know, continue thinking around all of those things very holistically. No, that's a great point. And then I think, you know, the last part of this is success is gonna look different for every single merchant, right? It's gonna depend on your vertical, 
there's always going to be a certain amount of things that are just unavoidable. Um, so, you know, success is going to need to be defined by you know, each of you on the call of what that means for you, whether it's a reduction in incoming chargebacks, whether it's you know, a higher win rate on specific subsets. Maybe success for you is just making sure that you have all the data in one place and that you have access to it. You know, define success uh, and make sure that it's not a static definition um, and that your definition is also achievable. And, you know, make sure that if you are running into struggles, you know, a reminder that external parties does not diminish your own success or efforts conducted as an organization, right? At the end of the day, the name of the game is prevention and recovery. If you are preventing and then therefore recovering uh, also more of potentially lost funds via working with a partner, um, that's, a, that's a big success. You know, if you would have lost $500,000 um in chargebacks that you weren't disputing because maybe again they didn't meet your dollar threshold and a partner can capture 60 or 70 percent of that 500,000 like that's a success and that needs to be celebrated so remember that success is not one size fits all and also just celebrate your successes right sometimes we don't celebrate ourselves enough and uh that gets into a whole nother topic uh, that we don't have time to cover on this webinar. And <laughs> but celebrate your successes as they occur. And then also, I think adopting a culture of change is, is really important. And I'll, I'll add in another story here of, of a merchant that I was working with where, you know, it, it was true that a lot of the chargebacks that were uh, they were incurring were refund related. And it was true that those were legitimate refunds that those customers should have been getting. And, you know, when I was talking to that merchant about those specific chargebacks, I was really, you know, taking from the approach of, all right, you know, you have these chargebacks and we should be looking at your refund and your customer service uh, processes because if these are legitimate refunds, they shouldn't be getting to the chargeback process. And their response to me was, well, if the customers are getting their money back via chargeback, we don't want to make the process harder uh, on them to, to get a refund. So we should just leave this alone. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. This is the, the wrong mindset, right? If you had a good return process and your customers were getting the legitimate refunds that they deserved, they wouldn't be going to the chargeback. So this right. is emblematic of you actually have a problem in your process that needs to be addressed. You're getting the wrong interpretation of the data here. Um, here's what the data is actually telling you. So being able to just even have that culture of accepting change and knowing that change needs to happen is important but mm -hmm. also having that that clearly defined process of how change will be implemented and monitored is also critically important so again going back to that holistic viewpoint of data that 
you need to have that data through point all the way to the very end, including ongoing monitoring. And then also having expectations that, you know, sometimes results are not immediate. You may not get an immediate fix, you know, from making one small change here or one small change there. It may take time to build up as people get more used to it or you get more used to accessing those that those data points and defending against chargebacks. But also don't get too comfortable waiting for change to happen. You should also, you know, be very cognizant of if a specific change that you wanted is not delivering the way it was anticipated, you need to also be able to recognize that and say, okay, this change didn't work out we need to go back to the drawing board and figure out what needs to happen because the outcomes are not what we anticipated. Yeah, yeah, and 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 those are very good points, you know, being patient and sticking with some of the optimizing that you're doing while also, you know, not waiting too long for results. I I mean it's a it, it's a it's an interesting balance that you have to strike. Um, you know, we would we would definitely say if you're at a point where you're optimizing and not seeing the results that you want and you're going back to the drawing board but aren't really sure how to take it, you know, call an expert. Not saying you have to outsource everything right then and there or any particular part, but, you know, call, call someone who's an expert on the matter and just run that by them. I mean, it, you know, I, I know Chargebacks 911, Redbridge, I know, you know, we'd be happy to take a call just to even talk through what your issues might be and it doesn't have to be anything that you know you have to necessarily commit to so you know and like you were mentioning about the uh the the merchant example that you just gave dan you know if you are um you know if you're if the mindset is you know we don't want to fight this charge because we want to make it easier for this customer to to get their their refund or you know whatever they're looking for back and that that might be you know it might be time for your company to maybe implement you know uh, an alert mechanism where you know you can you can get an alert that hey a, a, a customer is looking to file a chargeback they're looking to get a refund on this then you can go ahead and offer them that refund without the chargeback being filed because once that chargeback's filed that automatically goes to your card network uh, you have to pay the chargeback fee regardless if you fight that chargeback and win you still have to pay that fee so if that's your mindset already then there are, you know, some some tools and products out there for you that can, uh, um, you know, that that will go right into that mindset that you already have. So, um, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you, Dan. All right. Yeah. Well, that that takes us to the end of the uh, presentation portion. So again, Dan, incredible info that you were able to share with everyone. Thank you so much for joining. And and Dan's going to stick around for some questions that uh, we have right now that were pre-submitted. And again, guys, if you have any questions, uh, you know, you can go ahead and submit them here. Uh, with any that we can't get to uh, during this Q&A portion, uh, we will follow up with an email afterward to make sure that each question gets answered. Um, but with that, you know, we'll dive right in uh, to some of the questions that we have. This one comes from Ben, who asks, can data about issuers be harnessed to improve representments and tailor them to the issuer disputing the transaction? Uh, Dan, what's your take on that? Uh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think this is a huge part of the actual um, process and, and analyzing what you're getting back from those issuers, right? And being able to do that issuer analysis. Like issuer A may be taking your evidence and for the exact same type of dispute, 
and you may be winning it, but issuer B may be having maybe a problem with it. And so being able to one, identify what issuers are having, um, you know, some uh, disagreements with the data that you're supplying is compelling evidence and digging into that about, okay, or issuer B doesn't like this file presented in this format. So being able to then go through and do that issuer analysis and look at what you're presenting and how you're presenting it to them can definitely help you improve representments. Um, and it may you know, define a particular part of your strategy. Uh, if you don't have the time to do that, this is where an external partner can really make can rapidly make that decisioning for you. And if they have the proper access to your data, they're going to extract it and submit it exactly in the format that they know that issuer is going to like um, to help you improve your response time and improve your win rate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I think that goes into a great piece of advice you shared at the beginning of the webinar of, of having a contact at each of those issuing banks. So if you see it's, you know, hey, these other card networks are accepting this compelling evidence, but this one isn't, you know, reach out to that to that person, sort of explain the situation. Hey, you know, what what can I do to get this pushed across uh, the line as being, you know, something that's, you know, accepted by your card network. So, yeah, I think that ties into to what you had said earlier. All right. Next question is from Edward. And guys, apologies beforehand if I butcher any names on this. Um, so this one comes from Edward. Um, it's how do I deal with data reconciliation between the payment service providers? and the rapid dispute resolution alerts? Sure, so if, if you're using RDR, there is supposed to be signifiers sent um, and acquirers were supposed to adopt those, I believe in 2021, um, to show that a pre-dispute, you could say, was resolved uh, before it, uh, resulted into a chargeback. So there should be specific signifiers uh, from your PSP that show you uh, whether that has been resolved. Uh, it's not supposed to count towards your chargeback ratio. Uh, it's not supposed to be open for dispute if it already has been resolved. So I would you know, kind of wonder here whether you are seeing those particular signifiers or not, especially if you know that uh, there's pre-disputes being resolved through that RDR process. And if you're not seeing those specific indicators coming across from your PSP, that might need to be a conversation that you have with them about why they're not sending those specific indicators. All right. Um... Let's see, it looks like we had a repeat name in here. But this question is, uh, how do I deal with disputes where proof of delivery or invoices are not necessarily generated and therefore can't be used to represent a dispute? Well, this is one where I would, <clears throat> would kind of want to know a little bit more information about the actual good or service that you are providing. Um, and also, I think uh, something that's really important to, to look at here is, you know, what specific chargeback code is coming in? Is it something that's fraud related or is it something that's, can, you know, a consumer dispute, right? So if it's fraud related, you have a lot of different options that you can turn to 
in terms of gathering and collecting data along the stream of that transaction about you know whether you you chose to approve it and why you chose to approve it um and then also you know just because there are other indicators that you can also glean you know from your checkout process or from website interaction um, if it is a consumer dispute to help identify that customer is actually being the customer um, and you know it might be shipping notifications but I, I would say I would need a little bit more information here about what the actual dispute is um, mm -hmm. and what those customers are disputing. Right yeah it might be a little bit different if you're talking either friendly fraud or first party misuse yeah it, it could be a little bit different you know I, I would add to that you know it's just you know if uh, the goal in the end is just to gather and submit you know, as much relevant evidence as possible to, to create a convincing argument. So, you know, if you don't have those items, maybe start out by reaching out to the parties involved in the transaction, like the customer, the shipping carrier, uh, any intermediaries in between those. Um, request any valuable, you know, supporting documentation or information uh, that, that just helps support, like, validating that transaction. Um, if you've got those detailed records of the communication that you have, you know, if you've got dates, times, uh, you know a correspondence that was exchanged like make sure to have those on file um check your internal transaction logs and system records see if you have anything that's making note of that transaction if you don't have an invoice or that proof of delivery um you can look for any uh relevant information like your order history the timestamps, ip addresses uh any other data that can provide insight into the transaction itself um you know if the transaction involved any digital interactions like emails chat logs um, an electronic agreement, uh, gather and review those. Those can be really valuable evidence uh, to support a case, especially if you're without you know, a, an invoice or, or that proof of delivery. So uh, just, just wanted to add that in there as well. All right, our next question comes from Bree. She asks, how do I build a more effective evidence packet to secure a bigger chance of a positive outcome? Well, I think the first thing is look to the card networks and see what they accept as, as compelling evidence or main compelling evidence data points to make sure that you can actually collect those things efficiently. Um, you know, it's happened more than once or twice where we've been working with a merchant and we've uh, you know, identified certain areas of evidence that they should be providing and you know they don't have access or they don't collect specific items uh, of, of information along that checkout process. So you know as you're looking at building a more effective evidence packet, look to what some of those good aspects of compelling evidence are. Do that kind of um, post-mortem on your wins and losses, and also you know just make sure that you access to as much information around that customer experience um, and that customer journey as, as possible that you can start to submit, um, especially if it's you know, something that's fraud related um, or if it is you know, that first party misuse. Um, that's going to become a very big part of Compelling Evidence 3.0. Is, is making sure that you're able to collect even more information about that digital journey and also having multiple data points 
uh, in time along that journey as well. Mm -hmm. No, definitely agree. All right, and our last question is, what knowledge could we share with our clients that can help mitigate their losses from chargebacks? What resources have you found to be the most effective in reducing the number of chargebacks? Um, you know, to, to piggyback off of Dan's point that he made earlier, a great solution that can just prevent chargebacks from being filed in the first place are alert systems. Um, we recently published our annual field report a couple weeks ago, um, and for the first time we did a consumer survey as well, in addition to the merchant survey. And one of our key findings was that 75% of consumers believe that contacting their bank for a chargeback and contacting the merchant for a refund were the same thing. And it just kind of shows you where the mind of consumer is at and what they might not know happens on the back end when a chargeback is filed. Um, so having a protection mechanism like alerts in place that can help turn chargebacks into refunds and stopping you from getting that uh, that penalty with your payment processor, you know, avoid those chargeback fees and then the administrative cost it takes for someone to handle that chargeback in the first place. It just it, it's a uh, it's a snowball effect in what and what you can you can save for yourself. Um, so you still you still may lose that transaction by having to give a refund. But what you don't lose is that money spent on those penalties, those admin fees, and those other costs that are associated. You know, and also helps keep that chargeback ratio down, which is another huge benefit. Um, Dan, I didn't know if you had anything else to add to that. Um, yeah, you might also not lose that customer in the future because they've they've had a good experience. Um, you know, one of the things that we do at, at Redbridge is you know we conduct you know that assessment of your customer journey. The number of times I have cited, I can't even find your customer service number. I can't find your frequently asked questions. I, I can't find this information easily on your site. How do you expect customers to find it who have issues with the process? Mm -hmm. um, it's always a, you know, a huge part of being able to have and potentially integrate more responsive technology, like maybe a chat bot that can be operable, you know, 24 hours a day, um, looking at your customer service, uh, you know, operations times can be very helpful. And then also just looking at, you know, what can you show in the checkout process or pre-checkout or post-checkout to really help those customers understand what type of transaction that they're you know getting into uh, i'll give a, again a, a personal anecdote here just to close on you know I, I purchased something from a department store and that department store actually had it fulfilled by a completely different merchant so when i checked on my online banking i saw a completely different name than i was expecting if in that checkout process that retailer had said this will be fulfilled by X person and it will show on your bank statement as X because that retailer knew that it would be fulfilled by that party. I would have, you know, me being me and being in the payments industry, of course, I like looked up everything before I hit the chargeback button because I'm a nice guy. Uh, you know, just even doing small little subtle things like that uh, tend to have the the best and most profound effects, you know, subtle mm -hmm. little nudges to the customer work best. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and we know that customers, you know, if they have a bad experience, they're they'll, they're typically one to to go and and leave a review and comment on that as opposed to good experiences. So go check out your Google reviews or another, you know, any other search engine where p folks are leaving reviews. Check out the the one or two star reviews that you're being left and see if there's something that is being said in there that you can sort of take and then review your process and maybe it's something that you can optimize and uh, and, and something that you can eliminate. So you know, the customers in the future don't have a similar experience to those that might have had a bad one. So um, also another avenue that you guys can look at. Um, but again, Dan, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, and thank you everybody who attended and staying over a couple minutes. Uh, just a reminder, this webinar was recorded and we'll have a link at some point in the next day or so that it can be shared with colleagues or if you were just absolutely blown away with today's presentation, you can watch it again yourselves. Um, after 30 days, we'll have this webinar available on our podcast. Uh, that's Charge Forward with Chargebacks 911. It's available on all streaming platforms. So after about 30 days, we'll have it up there for you all to view. Um, thank you again so much for attending. Um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you guys on the next one. Have a good day. All right. Thank you. Bye.